Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 256. Uh, Y'all just finished your test, so that's good. We're getting into World War I. World War I, uh, this is going to begin the second uh, third of our class. Second third of our class. We're going to get a little bit more chronological as the class goes on. Uh, still thematic for a little bit. I'll give you a second to go on to Moodle to get the PowerPoint for World War One. I believe I'm going to split this into two different lectures. One's going to be just about the war. The other one's going to be about the domestic impact of the war. So World War One, the Great War, as you know, it might be known, uh, is a very large war, very important war. It's a very complicated war because there's a lot of different things going on. Uh, it's also a war that probably was going to happen for, for quite a while. Um, if you go to one slide, you'll see a headline which describes the war. War declared by all. Austria declares war on Serbia, declares war on Germany, declares war on France, declares war on Turkey, declares war on Russia, declares war on Bulgaria, declares war on Britain. Ottoman Empire also most declares war on itself. Um, except for the Ottoman Empire thing, which is a joke, the rest of it is accurate. That's who declares war on everybody. Uh, if that's complicated, why don't you look at a map, go over one slide, you will see an accurate map of the World War I who is fighting who. Um, very complicated uh, very, very who is going to be on what side, absolutely. We're going to get into that in just a second, but just so this is a very important time in world history. Really kind of ends imperialism. I mean, imperialism is totally killed by World War II. Uh, ends a lot of things of imperialism, though, is World War One. It's really the first, quote-unquote, modern war. Uh, the first war done with, like, modern technology. First, like, industrial war with industrial technology. We'll talk about that in just a second. But first, let's go back to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, whenever he comes into office, uh, he comes in with absolutely no foreign policy experience whatsoever. Um, no experience. I mean, he was governor of New Jersey. He was a college professor. Um, you know, he, he, he jokes that it'd be ironic if his administration had to deal chiefly with foreign affairs. Uh, the irony is it will. Um, <laughs> Even though Wilson comes in um, mainly talking about domestic affairs, his foreign policy is really what dominates his presidency. Uh, when he does become president, though, what foreign policy he does have is very idealistic, uh, very pious, very religious, very moral. It's like the United States has a moral obligation, a religious obligation, as part of their faith to act in a certain way. You know, we need to bring Christianity and democracy around the entire world. Uh, the guy he appoints as the Secretary of State. Secretary of State is the person who mainly does with foreign affairs. Uh, it's a cabinet member who's our chief uh, diplomat. He or she is our chief diplomat. We've had both men and women be this. It's not very just men, though. Uh, very important position for like determining how the U.S. is going to be involved in world politics. The guy he appoints is William Jennings Bryan. That's right. William Jennings Bryan comes back. If you look at a slide, you'll see William Jennings Bryan with Woodrow Wilson. That is a very happy-looking uh, William Jennings Bryan. Uh, he finally got into the White House. Uh, William Jennings Bryan runs for president three times. He doesn't win any time. He's the Democratic nominee three times. Never wins the, the, uh, never wins the presidency. However, he's now part of Wilson's administration. Remember... <laughs> William Jennings Bryan is like Forrest Gump in this class. He's going to show up whenever you least expect it. William Jennings Bryan is also very keen on this idea that America has a religious duty to bring Christianity and democracy to the entire world. Now, the first place that um, both Wilson and Bryan really get to talk about, you know, really get their, their challenge in with foreign policy is in Mexico. 
Uh, Mexico is a neighbor to the United States. It's our southern neighbor. Uh, the United States is actually unique for countries in that it has no real neighbors. It doesn't have multiple neighbors. It has few borders. It only has two main neighbors, you know, Canada and Mexico, and a very stable relationship generally with both of them. Um, you know, the U.S. has had a few wars with Mexico here and there, a few wars with Canada, nothing lately. Fairly stable as long as borders go. Uh, Mexico itself is going through a lot of political upheaval in this time. Uh, not very stable with its politics. And there is a lot of investment in uh, Mexico by the United States. A lot of American companies are interested in doing business with Mexico. And, you know, with the unsettled of, of Mexico, with this uh, kind of uncertainty, Wilson wants to make sure that Mexico is stable and also that U.S. business interest is protected. Now, to do this, uh, he decides he is going to station some U.S. Navy ships in Veracruz. Uh, Veracruz, Mexico, Veracruz, it's, um, it's around the Gulf of Mexico. It's south of Texas, uh, kind of near... Um, Cancun, that sort of area. It's a little bit north of Cancun. Uh, definitely definitely on the coast. Definitely close to, you know, Texas, close to Louisiana in a sense. Uh, basically, they decide, the, Wilson decides he's going to send some warships there, kind of as a, as a gesture of, hey, you know, um, just to make sure that Mexico stays stable in that area, protect U.S. business interest. Now, I don't know if anybody here, anybody here has ever been in the Navy, uh, but if you're in the Navy, uh, you're on a boat a lot of the time, and, and boats have limited resources. Um, it's very common, particularly in peacetime, for you know these, these naval ships that are uh, put off the side of foreign countries. They have very nice relationships with the uh, business relationships with some of the local vendors, you know, give them food and stuff. Also, it's very common to let soldiers go and leave. Um, if any of y'all have been on a boat in the Navy or know anybody who's been in the Navy who's been on a boat for a long time, Sometimes the best thing you do is getting off the boat. And if you're in port, it's fairly common to give soldiers leave. And now there is a thing that they only allow certain areas of town to be available for the soldiers. You can't have soldiers going deep into the uh, deep into the, the countryside. You know, let them stay within a certain area. Uh, there, you know, there's AWOL issues, but there's also issues of, you know, if a soldier of a foreign country goes into, you know, sovereign territory, it could be theoretically considered an invasion. And there's a little bit of a tiff in this. On April 9th, 1914, so 1914, when a group of U.S. soldiers, they get a little drunk. Uh, I know nobody here's ever had alcohol, but you've read books, you've seen movies. And some of these soldiers, they have a little too much to drink, and they decide, you know what, we're going to kind of get wander off. They kind of go into the desert outside of uh, Tampico, which is a part of Veracruz. Uh, they are arrested by the Mexican police, the Mexican authorities. They arrest them. They put them in jail, kind of throw them in the drunk tank for a night. Uh, shouldn't be a very you know major issue. This shouldn't cause any issue. It does cause issues, though, because when the U.S. Uh, Navy, whenever the Navy comes in the morning, whenever the, the captain of the ship, whenever the Navy officers come in, to get the uh, soldiers out of prison and, like, you know, kind of, you know, they're going to be punished once they get back on the boat, be thrown to the brig. But, you know, th this could have been an inter international incident because, theoretically, a soldier going AWOL in a foreign country could be an act of war or an invasion. Mexican officials like, hey, you know, here are your soldiers. Uh, you know, they got a little drunk and they went off into the wilderness. And so, you know, the, some of the U.S. Army, is, the U.S. Navy, I should say, is like, oh, thank you for doing that. But one Navy officer is a little overzealous. And he says, hey, you Mexicans need to salute the American flag. Now, remember, they're in Mexico. 
Um, the U.S. soldiers, the U.S. you know sailors, were the one who kind of goofed up here, and Mexico's like doing them a solid by just you know putting them in jail and not making a big issue of it. But this one, so, this one officer is a little overzealous and demands that the Mexicans salute the flag. Uh, this incident of itself doesn't cause the riots that start. How it does, however, really inflame anti-U.S. Uh, sentiments within the town. You know, the U.S. being there was not necessarily popular with the Mexican populace, and so uh, there's a series of riots that happen in Veracruz. If you go over one slide, you're going to see the uh, landing party that comes, because about two weeks after this happens, uh, Wilson sends in about 6,000 Marines to uh, Tampico in Veracruz to kind of calm the riots. Uh, the resulting occupation results in the death of 19 Americans and about 200 Mexicans. We don't even know how many Mexicans are killed. Now, the U.S. government is eventually going to leave Veracruz in late 1914 uh, because a new Mexican government comes to power who is theoretically more um, in line with the United States. They hope this is going to be a better situation for the United States. As we're about to see, it isn't necessarily. Because even though this new government comes in power, it's not very popular. And some Mexican groups start doing uh, border excursions. Some Mexican rebel groups start doing some border excursions on the northern Mexican border, southern U.S. border, uh, mainly because they don't like the new government, and they're trying to provoke the United States for reasons that are too complicated to get into, but just know that some of them aren't very fond of the United States. And some of them actually get pretty famous and also violent. Uh, if you go over one slide, you will see Pancho Villa, Ernesto Pancho Villa. Uh, Pancho Villa is one of the, he actually starts out as a politician. Uh, he, he later becomes disgruntled with uh, the Americans, even though he's Mexican. Not a fan of everything the Americans are doing. And so he starts, like, really doing a lot of anti-American sentiment. I, I think he wants the Americans to invade, so that's going to get him more power. It's kind of complicated. And so basically they start doing some border raids. They start kind of targeting some American citizens at the, uh, at the U.S.-Mexico border which in this time period is mainly a giant desert. There's not like a border wall or anything. Uh, basically, Villa is trying to provoke Wilson, and uh, it doesn't really happen. Wilson, you know, kind of doesn't do anything. He just wants to stay out of it. You know, the Veracruz incident kind of backfired on Wilson when it came to public opinion, and so he's trying to stay out of this. So Villa starts getting a lot more violent. Um, he, he seizes a train in Mexico and kills 16 American mining engineers trying to get the U.S. to intervene. You know, basically, the U.S. Ameri um, American citizens are being killed in Mexico by Villa, who is basically targeting Americans. Uh, you know, Wilson has some strong words, but Wilson isn't really looking for uh, any interference. He's not looking for anything to get involved. That failing, uh, Pancho Villa goes one a step further. He goes on even more border raids. He even invades the United States, theoretically. Uh, in, basically, on March 9th, 1916, he goes into Columbus, New Mexico, uh, he kills 17 women and children and burns the entire town down. Now, this actually gets Wilson's ire up because you are invading the United States and killing Americans on U.S. soldier. And so in the spring of 1916, about a month or two after this happens, um, Wilson sends in America's best general, uh, General John Pershing, who's about to become pretty more important. There's another picture of you if you go more. Um... Send over John Pershing to try to find Pancho Villa. He sends uh, Pershing and 11,000 troops to find Villa in Mexico. 
Uh, the reason that Pershing knows how to look for Villa is because if you go one picture, you will see they used to be buds. You can see Pancho Villa and Pershing together before all these border raids started. If you go over one slide, you're going to see what Pershing was actually doing with his 11,000 troops. Uh, it's a little too big of a force. It's a little too big of a force. Um, Villa becomes like a, a folk hero. He's hiding in like these little Mexican towns and caves and villages and stuff like that. Uh, you know, while Pershing is big and unwieldy, he has his massive army. You know, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to hide whenever you're one guy or a few guys, as opposed to 11,000 people. Now, Villa also does need to, to get um, you know, support and money in this time period. He's very charismatic. He does interviews. He even makes movies. Like, he literally makes movies with Hollywood while John Pershing is um, searching for him. Now, this whole cat and mouse game goes on until 1917, where basically Pershing returns. Uh, Pershing returns in 1917, actually just before the U.S. gets involved in World War I. Uh, Pershing would later become the U.S.'s main soldier, the main guy in charge of World War I, our main general. Now, Mexico is not Wilson's only venture into Latin America. Um, Wilson's predecessor, William Howard Taft, uh, had something called dollar diplomacy, which basically encouraged American investment into countries such as Haiti, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. Basically saying, hey, we're going to give a lot of money, have a lot of business ventures in these countries. That's going to help them become more stable. Problem is, they made these deals with the governments as well. And some of these didn't exactly have great governments. So when those governments aren't faring very well, uh, Wilson was okay with sending in troops to protect American investments and protect the government. Um, basically, the idea being that, you know, the U.S. is so much invested in this particular country with this particular government, it's justifying sending in soldiers who are really, you know, fighting per se. They're just, quote-unquote, peacekeepers. Uh, for instance, U.S. troops, they stay in Haiti till 1934 and Nicaragua until 1933. So well after this time period, we're talking about 15 years, almost 20 years that they're here. Uh, Wilson is criticized by many, particularly Republicans, for intervening way too often. Uh, remember, most Republicans are very isolationist. Actually, Wilson's a pretty isolationist guy, too. Honestly, the entire country is very isolationist. And so sending all these troops into all these foreign countries is not very looked highly upon by the American people. Now let's get to the actual war. Uh, the actual war, its origins, um, it begins with... Okay, there's a lot of different things that caused World War I. It, it was going to happen eventually. I hate to say anything in history is inevitable, but World War I was going to happen. Like, this is something where it's like, yeah, something bad's going to happen. And it, it was honestly just a counterplay, counter powder keg, there we go, powder keg, waiting to explode. Uh, there was a whole series of inside alliances, a lot of secret alliances between other countries, all sorts of under-the-table alliances and military agreements that it was just waiting for it to happen. Um, you ever seen those movies where ever, like, you know, somebody walks into a bar and draws a gun, and then everybody in the bar draws a gun, and, like, Everybody's got a different gun on a different person. Like, everybody's got two guns pointing at different people. That's pretty much what's going to happen in World War I. It escalates very, very quickly. All sorts of under-the-table alliances. Um, the alliances themselves, well, well, you know, let's go over one slide. Uh, okay, there's a lot of different powers here. There's a lot of different powers here at play. Uh, the main ones I want you to know about is the Central Powers and the Allies. What caused all these alliances in the first place is, okay, 
Germany, uh, the country as we know it, like the country of Germany, is actually very young. It comes about in the 1860s, 1870s. It's a much younger country than you might think it is. Um, I'm not saying the area is not old. No, I mean, the German area is old. German language is old. But the modern country of Germany is fairly young. Uh, before this time, it was a whole bunch of itty-bitty different countries, independent states, uh, kind of brought together by Prussia, primarily by a guy by the name of Otto von Bismarck. Otto von Bismarck was the chancellor of Prussia. He wasn't the king or anything, but he was the main diplomat for, for Prussia, and which is one of these little Germanic states. And basically, Prussia kind of dominates the rest of these other little countries around there, binds them together into a new country called Germany. Uh, Europe, for a long time, was worried about a strong power in the middle of Europe for reasons that go on hundreds of years I'm not going to get into, but you know, way past Napoleon for a long, long time. And so Bismarck is really good at building alliances, either by like force or by treaty. And in particular, he makes all sorts of crazy alliances, all sorts of secret alliances with other countries, pretty much to guarantee that France was going to be screwed over. Um, I'm not going to get into it, but Bismarck hated France. Bismarck could not stand France. And so basically he had this whole series of alliances that no matter what happens, he was going to screw over France. Now, the problem with having this many alliances is that it's really hard to keep track of who's with who. It's super hard to get uh, uh, keep up with who's with who. And pretty much as long as Bismarck is alive, as long as Bismarck is alive, he can keep track of it. Uh, there's a great political cartoon in this time period that shows Bismarck as a juggler. He's juggling all these various alliances. Uh, another cartoon I've seen with him is juggling cats. I mean, if you can imagine somebody juggling cats, like, wow, 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 all these cats are flying around. That's pretty much what Bismarck is doing. As long as he's the one throwing the balls, Europe is somewhat at peace, kind of. Now, ultimately, Bismarck uh, gets kicked out by the new leader of Germany, the new Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm. We'll talk about him in a second. Uh, as seen as too old, too old-fashioned. Remember, uh, uh, Bismarck has been around for a couple decades. Uh, he is dismissed by the new Kaiser a couple years before World War I. He is dead by the time World War I happens, so he dies. And with Bismarck out of the picture, nobody else can really control all these wackadoodle German alliances. So the two sides, the countries I really want you to know about, uh, you have the Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente. Later, they become known as the Central Powers and the, um, and the Allied Powers. Uh, the big two are Germany and Austria-Hungary. Uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary are the big like Central Powers and Triple Alliance the Ottoman Empire comes in later during the actual war. It's, it's, it, it's not a very strong country. Uh, the main one is Germany. Germany is a young country. Germany is younger than the United States. Uh, Germany is young. It's hungry. It wants to prove itself. It feels that it's just as good as all the other European countries, but it hasn't had a chance to prove itself. Austria-Hungary is an empire. It's an empire. You know, it's got an emperor. It rules over a lot of the countries in, like, Eastern Europe, um, Germany, they tried to unify under one culture, one language. Austria-Hungary is a lot of different people together. You have the Austrians, who speak like, actually a lot of them speak German. And then you have like Hunger, Hungary, which speaks Hungarian. You have all, Serbia, Serbia, all these different places. Uh, Germany has a much more cohesive culture than Austria-Hungary, which is more of a multi-ethnic empire. The Triple Entente is England and France and Russia. Uh, later on, they'd be jo joined by other people. Um... We'll get into that in just a second, but those are the main people you want to know about. Uh, if you go over one more, you'll see the leaders. Uh, the only leaders I want you to know about uh, for the Triple Alliance is Kaiser Wilhelm and Franz Joseph. 
Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm is Kaiser Wilhelm II, I should say, is the Kaiser of Germany. Uh, the term Kaiser, the term Kaiser, uh, literally just means Caesar. Um, it's the same thing. It's in fact in ancient Rome they pronounced uh, Caesar with a hard C, so it's you know Julius Kaiser. Um, it's the idea that Germany is a continuation of the Roman Empire that has gone along since the Holy Roman Empire. A lot of different leaders claim to be this sort of uh, continuation. Uh, the Emperor of Austria-Hungary is Franz Joseph I. He is the Emperor of Austria-Hungary. He does not have any children. Um, he does not have any sons. And so his heir is actually his nephew, who we're going to talk about in just a second. His, his nephew is his heir. Now, for the Triple Entente, for the uh, Allies, the main ones I want you to know about are George V and Tsar Nicholas II. Tsar uh, is another word like Caesar. In fact, that's where they get the word name from, is Caesar. Once again, it's kind of appealing to ancient Rome. Now, Kaiser Wilhelm, George V, and Tsar Nicholas II all have something in common. Or shall I say, someone in common. That is their grandmother. All these people, pretty much most of... Even to this day, most of European royalty are direct descendants of Queen Victoria of England. Uh, Queen Victoria of England uh, really loved her husband, uh, her husband Albert. She adored her husband, and she had multiple children with him. Multiple children who all made it into adulthood. Um, you know, and if you're if you're the child of a king and queen, well, Albert was a prince consort, but she was definitely the queen. If you're the child of royalty. You are a princess, or a prince, and you can only marry the prince and princess of another royal family. And so since she had eight children to marry off, pretty much she married them off to all the other royal families in, in Europe, and that's how they turned into a family feud. Um, remember, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm I, George V, and Tsar Nicholas II are all cousins. They are all first cousins. Like, they all have the same grandma. Their, their grandma was Queen Victoria. Now, it gets even crazier with George V and Tsar Nicholas II, because if you go over one slide, you will see a picture of the two of them. And if you notice, they look very identical. They are cousins, not brothers. But you would not be, you know, you would be, <laughs> you would not be the first to say that they were very close or think that they were identical twins. They aren't. They are cousins. Even their wives can't tell them apart. Like the Tsaress of Russia and the Queen of England literally could not tell their husbands apart until they talked. Um, Tsar Nicholas II spoke Russian. Tsar, uh, King, King George V didn't speak Russian quite as well as his cousin did. But they are very close friends. They, they look virtually identical. Uh, they, are, they are so close, closely affiliated. Uh, I can't even tell you right now which one is which. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the King of England is the one on the left and the Tsar is the one on the right, but I might be backwards. If you go over one slide, you'll see Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, George V, and Tsar Nicholas II. Remember, they are all first cousins. They are all first cousins. This is a family feud going on here. Um, Kaiser Wilhelm's got a kick-ass mustache, doesn't he? My goodness, look at that mustache. That is a that is a beautiful mustache he has here. Uh, King George V is also the grandfather of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, he that is Queen Elizabeth's grandfather. The current queen, Queen Elizabeth II, like the Queen of England, that is her grandfather. So now that we've established a lot of this is a family feud, let's talk about how it actually gets started. Um, remember the King of Austria-Hungary, the Emperor of Austria-Hungary, who didn't have an heir? Well, he didn't have a child? Well, 
He does have an heir, and his heir is his nephew. His nephew is named Franz Ferdinand. Now, Franz Ferdinand is, uh, you know, he's the heir to the throne. He's the, he's the emperor's nephew. And he's on a goodwill mission to Serbia, particularly Sarajevo. Uh, Serbia is a region within Austria-Hungary that doesn't like being part of Austria-Hungary. It wants its own independence. However, you know, it has its own separate language, its own separate culture. It's not crazy about what's going on with Austria-Hungary. But politically, it is part of Austria-Hungary. There's a lot of separatists there, a lot of people who want independence from Austria-Hungary, basically for Serbia to become its own separate state. Sarajevo is the capital of Serbia, which is a region, not its own separate country. Now, there are rebels there, there are people trying to break them apart. And Franz Ferdinand goes on a goodwill mission to Sarajevo. If you go one picture, you'll see Franz Ferdinand there with his wife, Sophie. Now, in Sarajevo, there is an anarchist group. There's a group, there's a, there's a Serbian separatist group. They've got one of the greatest names ever for like an evil group, not evil group, but a dastardly group called the Black Hand. The Black Hand. Ooh, that sounds just, ooh, they're, they're uh, you know, mm, they're, they're, they're dastardly, those Black Hand people. And, you know, basically they're a bunch of students, a bunch of young people. Uh, they, the, the idea is they want to kill the Archduke because they uh, they want to kill the heir to the throne because they think it is going to cause revolution. Maybe it might you know cause Austria-Hungary to get rid of um, Serbia, basically because of it being overthrown. Maybe it shows how serious they are. Also, the insurance policy that Serbia has, the groups like the Black Hand have, even though it's theoretically part of Austria-Hungary, they have an agreement with Russia that if Austria-Hungary ever comes in hard on Serbia, like you know tries to send in troops... Russia will declare war on Austria-Hungary. It's a secret alliance, because theoretically Serbia is part of Austria-Hungary, where they have an alliance with Russia, even though they're not their own separate country. It, it's complicated, I know. So in Sarajevo, uh, the Black Hand is trying to you know, have an assassination attempt. They're like, all right, cool, we're going to throw a bomb. We're going to throw a bomb. Look at this bomb. You know, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the route of where the... Uh, Archduke and his wife are going to be driving around in their motorcade. They're in an open-air convertible. It's been published in the newspapers. So, you know, they get this bomb. They're like, all right, cool. We know we're going to go. The Black Hand runs. They throw the bomb, bounces off the side of the truck, doesn't blow up. And basically the um, the guy who throws it runs away, tries to run away from authorities. Uh, he tries to jump into the river to drown himself. The river is too shallow. He can't drown himself. It's only like a foot deep. He gets captured. Uh, the motorcade gets scooped, uh, spooked, and so basically they go off chore. So another one of these assassins, another one of these black hand guys, he's like, "Man, I'm the worst assassin ever. Uh, you know, this, this sucks. Let me, let me, let me, let me go back. You know, before I go back to my friends, he decides to get something at a cafe, get something to eat, something to drink. Uh, just a, suddenly, he hears a commotion outside. It's the motorcade. It's the archduke and his wife. They, the motorcade went somewhere different. It's just right in front of him. And so he's like, "All right, this is my chance." So he runs up to the side of the car. Hops on the side, whips out a pistol, which he has, fires straight into the Archduke's wife. Uh, hits the Archduke's wife. Finally, he shoots again, gets the Archduke. Uh, the Archduke dies, so does his wife. Uh, actually, the Archduke's last words are, you know, Sophie, my dear, please don't die. You must think of the children, uh, talking about their children. Uh, but he does indeed die. He does indeed die. And this should be a very, you know, internal affair. Th this really should just uh, affect Austria, Hungary, and Serbia. I mean, 
This is an assassination. It could definitely cause a civil war. It could cause a lot of political upheaval. But how does this turn into everybody goes to war? Well, here's how it turns into everybody goes to war. It turns into everybody goes to war because of that secret alliance that Serbia has with Russia. Because when Austria-Hungary says, hey, we're going to send in troops to kind of root out all the rough people within Serbia, Serbia tells Russia, this is a declaration of war. So basically, Russia declares war on Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary, in turn, is like, okay, okay, all right, all right, this is not a big war, but whatever. Germany decides to come in. It's like, hey, we now declare war on Russia because we're Germany. And that's what Germany does. Germany is a young, strappy kid. They want to prove themselves. They want to prove how good of a country they are, how great they are, how they're worthy to be included with all the other European powers. This, in turn, sets off a whole bunch of different alarms because a lot of different countries in Europe have the if Germany gets too aggressive because we're afraid of them, we declare war on them too, including France and England. This, in turn, causes other countries to declare war, like, you know, Italy and all sorts of other countries, and it turns into a big effing mess really quick because of the nature of this warfare. Now, a lot of these countries are under the impression that it's going to be a very quick war. Uh, there's talk about, like, this war might be over before Christmas for the English. Um, you know, there's this idea that because of all these new weapons, it's going to be a, a much quicker war, a much um, a sanitary war, a less gruesome war, they think, because it's, it's so efficient at killing folks. Uh, you got to remember, for, for several decades now, the European countries have all been fighting, like, tribal people in their various places they've imperialized, and they're like, oh my gosh, that's not a very fair fight. You know, um, for instance, at Khartoum, whenever the English go up against the Zulu, well, actually, Khartoum's not with the Zulu, but another part, uh, whenever the English fight the Zulu, it's not Khartoum, uh, I'll remember the battle as soon as this is done recording, it doesn't matter the battle, but the English have a Gatling gun, and the Zulu have, like, spears, and it gets really gruesome really quick, because when you have a Gatling gun, which is like a proto-machine gun, versus spears, it's it's not a very fair fight. And basically there's this idea that, you know, this is not a good even fight, it's not a sporting fight, we can't really prove ourselves, prove our manliness. Uh, the problem with all these countries being so industrial and so evenly matched is that it makes the war into a stalemate very quickly. Very quickly this war becomes a stalemate because both sides are just way too efficient at killing folks. And particularly in the Western Front, in the Western Front, which is the border between France and Germany, uh, that becomes trench warfare very quickly. Uh, trench warfare pretty much becomes the war for World War I in the Western Front. In the Eastern Front with Russia, it's a bit more dynamic, a bit more stuff moving around. But on the Western Front, when we're talking like between Germany and France, which is where the vast majority of the fighting happens, it's literally just trench warfare. What's a trench? Well, it's a six-foot hole in the ground. Basically, they dig these trenches, they dig these holes in the ground, these, these long tunnels, open-air tunnels. I have some pictures you can see right there. Some guys go over the hump. There they are within the trench. If you go over one picture, you will see them in the snow. Um, it's a very nasty place to be. Um... You know, basically, you're, you're very close to the other side, like extremely close to the other side. You can hear them talking. Uh, it'd be about as far as, like, if we're at Nichols right now, we're in Pelche, about as far as, like, the pool is. About as far as the pool is, maybe a little bit further, maybe even out to the cane fields. But you can hear them, you can see them. 
Uh, it's literally a hole in the ground. Uh, generally, soldiers were supposed to stay there for a couple weeks before they got rotated out, but while you were there, it is miserable. Um, it's a very unsanitary place because if you have a giant hole in the ground, first of all, you have no cover from the weather. So if it rains or snows, you're exposed. Also, you have no sewage. Sewage is a major deal. You want your poop to go somewhere that's not by you, and if you're in a trench, you can't do it. Now, every once in a while, your commanding officer is going to say something like, all right, boys, we're going over the top. We're going over the top, which means we're going to try to go through what's called no man's land, which is the area in between the two trenches, which is like loaded with barbed wire and uh, landmines and instant death. And it's, it's a very... Both sides are so evenly matched, it becomes a stalemate almost instantaneously. It's the first industrial war, and the numbers really reflect it. Like, and for instance, uh, the Battle of Verdun, which is a major, major thing, major battle, uh, it has 32 million artillery shells fired. That's a huge number. 32 million artillery shells fired. Let me give you a better number for that. There were 1,500 shells for every square meter of the battlefield. I'll repeat that. Every square meter, so like a three by three square, had 1,500 shells on it. It was the equivalent. The losses were astonishing. Uh, the French lost about 1,600, sorry, not 1,600, 162,000 soldiers at Verdun. The Germans lost 143,000. Um, single charges become devastating, even single charges. For instance, at Ypres, another battle, the British lose 13,000 people in a charge. Like 13,000 people die in one charge within like a minute, less than a minute. 13,000 people die. This is a very disillusioning war. Uh, they had all these designs of like this being a sexy war, an appealing war, an attractive war, a, a heroic war, and they learned very quick that war is not very heroic. Uh, sorry, not war is not very heroic, but war is nasty. Uh, there's all sorts of crazy new technologies they come up with during this war. Uh, this is the first time where you have tanks. Tanks are used for the first time. Um, gosh, what, what else? Uh, submarines are used. The, the, uh, well, submarines have been used in like s surveillance purposes and recon purposes so even since the American Civil War. But you have like battle submarines now. Machine guns are used for the first time. Airplanes. Airplanes are a brand new technology in this time period. They're not even pressurized. So you have, like, low-flying planes flying against each other. And, like, the, some of these early uh, pilots carried swords with them because, like, if their plane crashed, if both planes crashed because they're not flying that high, they'll probably survive. And they sword-fought the other dude to basically find out who won the battle. Uh, when this war started, they had cavalry charges, for crap's sake. Cavalry. That's a horse charge against a machine gun. Bad stuff. Uh, the one weapon which was seen as really, really bad, though... Uh, the one weapon that was so bad that after this, like, the entire world agreed we're never using this weapon ever again was mustard gas. They used poisonous gas. Uh, mustard gas is a very, very toxic, uh, fumy gas. Um, it's also shockingly easy to make with household chemicals. I'm not going to tell you that, but uh, be careful when you combine household cleaners. That's all I'm going to say. If you combine the wrong household cleaners, the, the scent will literally kill you. Now, mustard gas, once it gets into your lungs, it literally disintegrates your lungs. I've heard it being described as like you're drowning on dry land because your, your lungs just disappear. You cannot breathe. 
Uh, it's also very bad because the wind can be temperamental, and like you might throw mustard gas at your enemy, but if the wind goes the wrong way, you get your own self. And also, it's very close. It's very close. If you can see, you know, if you go over one slide, you will see some of the gas masks they try to come up with. Uh, the gas mask had various versions of uh, effectiveness in this time period against gas, against mustard gas. Um, looks like they're ready to go to the COVID store, but no, 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 it's not COVID, it's just World War One. In fact, the guy on the bottom right kind of looks like Leonardo DiCaprio with a goatee, it's kind of funny. Also, they even put gas mask on dogs. Here's a, here's a good boy with a gas mask on. So this is a very destructive war. It's very horrible. The you know, United States is hearing all these horrible numbers, you know, millions of people dying. The top graduating classes at Oxford Cambridge, not Harvard. Top graduations of Oxford and Cambridge are dying very quickly in these horrible battles. And for the U.S., the general sentiment is, thank God it's not us. We want to stay out of it. If you go over one slide, you'll see our initial response in one word is neutrality. We are happy to stay out of it. Not only that, we're very happy there is an ocean between us and the war. You know, the Atlantic Ocean is here. That sounds wonderful. But even that, you know, Wilson is, is trying to tell the U.S. population we need to be neutral in thought as well as action. It's not enough that we're not fighting in the war. We also need to, like, not really have a bias one way or the other. And that is kind of challenged by our immigrant populations because a lot of immigrants still have ties to their home countries. Remember, a lot of these are first, actually by this time you have a lot of second generation immigrants, but they still have some sympathies for their home countries, most of whom are involved in this war. In particular, if you didn't know this, the majority of U.S. immigrants, in fact, the majority of the U.S. population, about a third of the U.S. population of this time period is first or second generation immigrants. About a third of the U.S. population in this time period is first or second generation immigrants. And the biggest number of those immigrants, like I'd say probably close to a third of that, so like a ninth of the U.S. population, is German. German immigrants. German first and second generation immigrants make up by far the bulk of the U.S. population, uh, U.S. immigrant population. So to this day, the, the most common uh, country of ancestry for an immigrant is, uh, for, uh, for an American, is Germany. And so, you know, you have a large chunk of the population kind of sympathetic towards Germany in this. Uh, the second biggest immigrant group is the Irish. Those are my people. Uh, if you don't know I'm Irish, well, I am. Congrats. Tell you it's a super Irish last name. Uh, the Irish, the Irish, if you don't know anything about the Irish, know this. They hate England. Oh, do the Irish hate England. The Irish hate England. And so they're also invested, not really in Germany winning, or the, the, um, the central powers winning, but mainly in Britain losing. But there's something else going on here, because even though a lot of immigrant groups have their own little sympathies, and America is very happy not to be involved in the war, some companies are like, this could be a chance to make some money. Because as the war goes on and on, the countries involved in the war get desperate for supplies. It's very hard to like, have a harvest whenever your fields are full of like trenches and landmines. It's very hard to like have an industry and have an economy going on whenever your you know, you're young men, your more likely workers, are the ones who are in the battlefield. And so all the, with all the destructions, the countries at war, they need a lot of things. And not just like war supplies. Like, you know, of course they need like guns and bolts and stuff. But they also need food. They need clothing. And they need other basics. And so a lot of American companies are like, hey, we could make some money off this. The problem is the countries at war don't exactly have a lot of money to spare. Remember, they're, they're fighting. They, they have a d demand. 
and they need some loans. And who's got loans? Well, the United States has money. Remember, the U.S. is not involved in this war. And so various American companies start pressuring the U.S., the U.S. government, to start lending money to the countries at war. And the U.S. is very hesitant at first, uh, particularly William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan says that doing so would violate neutrality. You know, once you start loaning money to people, you are no longer neutral. You have an invested interest. Now, Wilson agrees with this at first. At first, he agrees with this. At first, he goes, uh, you know, he's along with William Jennings Bryan on this. But quietly, he's allowing some small loans. Um, as early as the war is starting in 1914, remember, Wilson at this time period is dealing with Vera Cruz and all sorts of other stuff, Pancho Villa. Wilson is very quietly allowing small loans, theoretically just for, like, clothing or food or medicine. Nothing, nothing too over the top. By the time we get to 1915, he removes all restrictions on loans. The U.S. can loan as much money to whoever they want. And if you want to know why the U.S. enters in on the side of the Allies as opposed to the uh, Central Powers, um, I can tell you that in one stat. In one stat. Okay. Uh, in a war, whenever you loan money to one side, it's usually done in promissory notes, basically with the promise that later on they're going to pay you back. Uh, that's how this all works. They're going to pay you back. And, uh, well, <laughs> you can only really get paid back if your side wins. Now, you know, you might be able to hedge your bets by, you know, playing both sides against each other. Hopefully your interest is enough to cover the other investment. But if you're heavily, more heavily invested in one side than the other, that's pretty much the side you're going to be in on. Okay. So the U.S. loaned $2 billion to the Allies and $27 million to Germany. I repeat, the U.S. loaned $27 million to Germany and $2 billion to the Allies. To put that in smaller numbers, you might be able to understand uh, that's the same thing as, like, you loan one person $2,000 and the other person $27. Uh, what money are you more interested in recouping? Would you be more upset if you lost out on $2,000 or $27? Like, you know, you get the $27, but you lose out on $2,000, you might be upset. Whereas if you get $2,000 and lose out on $27, you are not even going to think about it. If you want to know why the U.S. comes on the side of the Allies, that's it right there. The problem, however, is shipping. Shipping becomes the fly of the ointment. That's the thing. Because even though American companies are lending money to these European countries at war, and they're, you know, buying American goods, food and stuff, stuff that's not necessarily, you know, military supplies, you have to get it over to them. Now, the way to get it over to them, airplanes aren't quite big enough to do cargo planes yet, the way to get over to them is shipping. Now, theoretically, the seas are neutral. You know, only along one country's coast is that sovereign. Uh, it's called the neutrality of the seas. That's a very, very old concept. It's the idea that once you get into international waters, no one place has sovereignty on it. The sea has its own law. Uh, like, that's why you can be married on a, by a ship captain or something. It's because, you know, boats have their own theoretical sovereignty. You know, you might be under one country's flag, but unless you're, like, right off the coast of a country... Uh, that is considered neutral territory. Now, this idea of the neutrality of the seas was to be respected with the Central Powers and the Allies. And at first, Germany, uh, and remember, the Central Powers don't have that big of a navy. Uh, Germany barely has a coastline. Austria has no coastline. And so they're okay with this. They're like, hey, let's make this a land war, not necessarily a sea war. 
That is not really cared upon by Britain. Great Britain in this time period has by far the best naval power in the world. Great Britain's naval power, I mean, England is, a, is an island. Their naval power is the best naval power in the world. They say, no, we're not going to respect this neutrality of the seas. Uh, because we have the biggest and best warships, we're going to do whatever we can, whenever we want to. That's the whole shtick about this. Now, in order to really uh, get into this, England starts by mining the North Sea. Uh, remember how I said that Germany has very limited coastline? What coastline they do have is in the North Sea. wish I had a map, but I don't. Uh, but the North Sea is, you know, right above Germany, right above Germany. England starts putting a lot of mines there, a lot of sea mines. <coughs> Sorry, I had to cough. Basically preventing the supplies that Germany companies might want to buy in the first place from getting there. There's really no way to ship things into Germany because of all the mines. Now, Germany responds to all this by bringing in the U-boats. U-boats. Uh, U-boat uh, is a shortened version of undersea boats. Um, it's literally just a type of submarine. It's literally just a type of a submarine. It's an early submarine. It's a very fragile submarine. Uh, it is a super fragile submarine. Uh, in this time period, the hull of a U-boat could be pierced by, like, a rifle. So, like, if you saw a U-boat, you could just, like, throw a rock at it, and it might actually sink. Maybe, okay, something a little bit stronger than a, uh, than a rock. But, like, a rifle could pierce the hull of a U-boat. They're very fragile, very much built on being secretive. The problem is, you can't really be, you have to be secretive in a U-boat, because if you announce your presence, it's very easy to be sunk. Now, the old rules of warfare, the old rules of warfare uh, have some rules when it comes to boats being sunk. Uh, for instance, you don't sink a boat until you allow the passengers to get off. That's just seen as unnecessarily cruel. Um, you know, you, you know if, if the boat is going to sink, uh, you let the passengers get off, you, you give them a fair shot. If you've won the battle, you can let the passengers get off. That's no big deal. You're supposed to give them access, that sort of thing. Don't be unnecessarily cruel. That, that's the basic concept here. Uh, the Germans don't do that because if they do, the U-boats would get sunk. Remember, the U-boats are very fragile. Their whole shtick is secrecy. Now, there's another rule that you're supposed to allow uh, countries that are not involved in the war safe passage. You know, if an American boat goes by, the Germans are not supposed to mess with it because it is an American boat and it's in international waters. You know, if it's off the coast of Germany, that might be an issue. But once you're in international waters, that shouldn't be an issue, which is where U-boats generally are existence. Now, this is a problem because the United States is not allowed to ship legally goods over to the countries. They're theoretically supposed to let the other countries bring in their own boats. But some ship captains get around this by smuggling. Uh, basically, they put it on passenger boats. They put illegal guns and, and you know, guns on, on these ships. Uh, legal supplies, not illegal supplies, but extra legal supplies, stuff that was bought with legal U.S. money, but because of the whole thing about you're not supposed to ship things over, it gets into a little, it gets into a little uh, stickiness there. Now the Germans, remember, they're like, look, our, our main thing is secrecy. If we make any announcements about how this is all going to happen, that totally, you know, messes up our whole, our whole shtick. And so they're like, look, if we, if we tell people that we're there, if we tell the passengers, hey, you're about to get sunk, like, our U-boats can be sunk very easily. As I've mentioned several times, they are very, very, very fragile. And plus, the Germans are not too crazy about these boats, which are theoretically American boats, 
carrying goods for the Allies. You know, they're theoretically carrying goods for their enemies, and there's nothing they could do about it. So what Germany does is they literally put out an ad in several American newspapers. They basically warn several American newspapers. Basically, they put you know several in several newspapers. They literally take out a full page ad and you know newspapers like the New York Times saying, "Hey, look, Americans traveling on boats. If your captain is unscrupulous and has uh, illegal contraband on there, likewise, if you're for if you're if you're sailing under a ship that's from like England or something. Remember, a lot of ships are from England." of these passenger ships, we cannot guarantee your safety. You know, you are taking your life into your own hands if you do this. Now, Germany thought this was going to be enough. Remember, the U.S. is supposed to be neutral. Germany wants to keep them neutral. That doesn't happen with the sinking of the Lusitania. If you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of the Lusitania sinking. Uh, The Lusitania is actually, it's an English ship that is carrying contraband from America. Well, not contraband, but illegally um, shipped goods that were legally bought over to England. It's an English ship. It's a passenger ship. It's got about 1,200 passengers. Actually, more than 1,200 passengers. Um, A lot of Americans are on the ship. It gets sunk by a U-boat. A U-boat sinks a ship, gives no warning. It sinks a ship. Uh, The ship definitely had um, weapons on it. That's not really really under any controversy. We know that now. At the time, that wasn't common knowledge. So it looks like the Germans are being unfair. They're being... Sneaky. They're they're attacking Americans, and it's not good because about 1,200 passengers die. Of those who die, 128 are Americans. In response to this, Wilson is very cool. Uh, Wilson calls for restraint. Wilson says we don't need to get involved in war. This upsets a lot of different Americans. One American who it really upsets is Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt is a private citizen in this time period. And they felt that the death of these Americans was an act of war. He said, basically, Germany has declared war on us. They killed American citizens who were doing nothing. These were not combatants. These were people who were just in a boat. They were just taking a trip to England. He says that uh, that Wilson is unmanly and calls him, quote, a jackass for showing restraint after the attack. Now, what Wilson does do is he writes a note. Uh, he does a very scholarly thing, and he writes a note. He writes a note to Germany saying that this unrestricted submarine warfare needs to go away. They can't be just be sinking stuff everywhere. Now, Germany agrees, provided that the ships don't try to flee. They say basically, look, we're not going to sink these ships. We'll allow passengers a chance to get off if, and only if, they don't flee. Now, if you're a ship, that makes no sense because these ships are generally faster than submarines, and also they might be better armed, and also if a submarine announces itself, and you might like have you know a, a sharp stick, you could sink the submarine. So it doesn't really make sense. Uh, there are more ships that are sunk. Uh, for instance, the a French ship called the Sussex is sunk by the uh, Germans in 1916. Uh, the U.S. has even more range. It demands what's called the Sussex Pledge. The Sussex Pledge, named after the boat, it's a French ship, it basically makes the Germans promise that it would no longer attack merchant or passenger ships. Basically, the Germans had to promise their U-boats are only going to attack either a merchant ship or a passenger ship. Sorry, no longer attack those ships. Now, are the Germans going to actually keep attacking them? Yes, because those are the ships that are sending over the goods for their enemy. Remember, that's a very much a stalemate between Germany and the Allies. And Germany's like, why is the U.S. so inclined with the Allies? Germany doesn't realize just how much money the U.S. has loaned the uh, the Allies. 
Now, I can't this enough. You know, you see Part D. Despite all this, there are a lot of pledges of isolation. The United States is very much interested in isolation. Pretty much all Americans want to stay out of this war. You know, they hear about Ypres. They, fear, they hear about Verdun. They hear about the trench warfare. You know, the hundreds of thousands of people dying in one battle. 1,500 shells of art, artillery for every square meter of land. And they're like, thank God it's on us. We need to stay far the heck away from this war. Now, there are some who want to build up the military just for quote-unquote preparedness reasons. You know, hey, we're, we're not going to get involved in the war, but just in case, we need the military ready to go just in case. Now, this is actually opposed by a lot of Americans. Um, it's not until relatively recently in U.S. history that the U.S. has had a standing army. Uh, the idea of a standing army, an army that's just there ready to fight at any given time, is not one that's very common in U.S. history. Uh, for most of U.S. history, we're actually terrified of that idea, mainly because of uh, the revolution, this idea that a standing army might impose its will upon uh, the populace. Uh, still, that is opposed by the majority of Americans. Most, you know, they're, they're very opposed to the building up military preparedness. Uh, Wilson is able, able to get a very modest increase in the number of troops. This is really strongly opposed by William Jennings Bryan. Uh, William Jennings Bryan had actually resigned in protest after some of the Lusitania stuff and also the giving money to the Allies as Secretary of State. But this time he's a private citizen again. Uh, he strongly opposes. Uh, William Jennings Bryan strongly opposes increasing the number of troops. He says if we increase the number of troops that are being trained, we're going to go to war. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. It's going to happen. The problem is paying for this. Uh, a saying you'll hear me say all the time is wars cost money. Wars cost money. And if you're going to raise an army, you need to raise some money. Now, to pay for this troop increase, Congress passes an income tax. Remember, they already had an income tax just on the top 5% of U.S. earners. Uh, this new income tax is only on the top 15% of the U.S. earners. And it's, uh, it's only capped at 15% too. So it's very much held as a triumph. Uh, nowadays, income taxes are quite a bit higher than 15%, uh, depending on your income bracket. Uh, like, for instance, for my wife and I, I mean, we are not, you know, we both work and we're doing okay. We're not rich by any stretch of the imagination. And our income taxes are generally around 30 to 40%. And we're definitely not in the top 15% of earners in the United States. This is very much hailed as a victory. And all this happens in 1916. If you go over a slide, you will see a button from Wilson in 1916, because Wilson is running for re-election. Uh, Wilson is running for re-election. He gets a very close, very squeaky victory. Uh, basically, his main promise is to continue the uh, progressive agenda, which he doesn't do that much of at this time period because he's too busy on foreign affairs. But mainly, it's to stay out of the war. There, uh, He wants to stay out of the war. His slogan this is, he has kept us out of the war. The insinuation being that a president of lesser character, somebody more hot-headed, would get us in the war. If you go over one slide, you'll see uh, one of his campaign trucks, you know, vote for Wilson and Marshall. Uh, for President Woodrow Wilson, who broke the money trust, who keeps us out of this war, uh, vote for Wilson, peace with honor. You know, prosperity, but also preparedness. Like, we're not going to be chumps. We're not going to be taken out by the Germans or anybody <laughs> in this war, but we're going to stay out of the war. Now, when Wilson does win, uh, there is an effort to negotiate peace. However, Germany decides to return to unrestricted submarine warfare, trying to do a quote-unquote knockout punch. 
They feel the sailmate has gone so on so long. If they just amp up the submarines a little bit, maybe they could completely knock out England of the war. They could actually win this. That's not what happens, but we'll see what happens there. Now, why does the U.S. really get involved in the war? Why does the U.S. get involved in the war? Couple reasons. Couple reasons. Uh, the reason why Wilson claims to get involved in the war is the U-boat policy. Um, in March 1917, five U.S. merchant ships are sank by the Germans. Uh, this is the reason why uh, Wilson asked for war. So if you want to know like technical reason, why does Wilson get involved in World War I? It's not the Lusitania. It's not the Sussex. It's the fact that five U.S. merchant ships are sank in one month. But even though that's the reason why he asked for a declaration of war, war was definitely already coming. Uh, for two reasons. One thing is a little bit of fun, I don't want to call it propaganda, but, uh, you know, fun little bit of something. Uh, is, this, is this legit? Is this dubious? I can't tell you one way or the other. But what I do know is the Zimmerman telegram has got fishiness in it. There are some holes in this story. Uh, basically, the Zimmerman telegram was theoretically a telegram that was sent from Germany to Mexico. The main diplomat for Germany and Mexico was this guy named Zimmerman, hence where it gets a name. Theoretically, it is an encoded telegram. If you look on the left, that is the encoded telegram. And here's the thing. The United States does not get this telegram. The British get this telegram, or they claim it. The British claim, hey, America, we got this telegram. Can we see it? And, you know, do you want to see it? And America's like, yeah, we, we want to see this telegram desperately. And Britain's like, well, you can't see the actual telegram. We'll give you a copy. So they show him the copy, and you see it's just numbers. It's just numbers. And America's like, wow, it's in code. And, then, and England's like, well, we broke the code. We broke the code. You, you wanted to see what it is? And they're like, yeah. And England's like, well, we can't give you the code itself, but we can tell you the translated message, which may or may not be dubious. Basically, what the Zimmerman telegram says, very, very succinctly, you can read it yourself, says, hey, look. It's like, hey, Mexico, it's Germany. How's it going? We know you and the U.S. have had a bitter kerfuffle, you know, with that Pancho Villa guy in Veracruz. And we know y'all aren't, you know, the most, uh, you know, y'all got some contention right there. But basically it says, hey, we're, we're Germany. We're about to go back to unrestricted submarine warfare. This might upset the Americans. Uh, so we want to keep the U.S. neutral. You know, we're, we want to keep the U.S. neutral, which the Americans already are. But we want to keep them to stay neutral. So what we want you to do is we want you to declare war on the United States, all right? It says basically, we're going to allow, we're going to ally with Mexico so Mexico can fight the United States. And then once, you know, Germany wins World War I, Germany is going to help Mexico get back the territory that Mexico lost to the United States over the years, in particular, New Mexico, Arizona, and the big one, Texas. Now, I don't know if y'all know any Texas or Texans, uh, they're very fond of being Texan and not Mexican. And they're, they're more fond of being Texan than they are uh, American, even. Um, if I was going to, like, invade the United States, the, the last place I would start is Texas. That'd be the, the, that'd be the place I don't even try to invade. I'd start with something easy, like, you know, the Dakotas. Not, not Texas, because Texas is filled with Texans. Who, uh, yeah, how do you think the Texans go whenever they hear about this? Even though it is very dubious, and there are some giant holes in this story. Yeah, yeah, this really pisses off a lot of Americans. It looks like Germany's being dastardly, they're being sneaky. Uh, talk about, you know, taking over Mexico, that's, ooh, we don't like that either. 
so that's one of the reasons why American, uh, you know, public opinion changes toward it. Uh, the main reason why we get involved, though, is because the stalemate actually ends, in a sense, um, with the Russian Revolution. Uh, communists, the Communist Party, uh, takes over Russia in this time period. Uh, the Communist Revolution happens. Uh, basically, the Tsar is killed. Tsar Nicholas, you know, his identical cousin is George V of England. Uh, he and his family are killed by the... He's deposed and he's killed by the communists. You have the civil war between the Reds and the Whites. Uh, the Reds eventually win. This is led by, um, by Lenin. Basically, Lenin says, Hey, Germany, and hey, Eastern powers, we're, we're out. You know, Russia's got its own thing. Uh, the communists want no part of this war. We are getting out of this war. Now, with the Eastern Front gone, Germany no longer has to fight a two-front war. Beforehand, Germany was fighting both Russia and the French slash English, you know, uh, Russians on the east, uh, French on the west. But now America's only fight, uh, sorry, Germany is fighting only a one front war and they're pretty much doubling their troops and resources. So this might actually break the stalemate, even though, you know, they're both really drained or whatever. Germany can now double its troops on the Western front and just possibly the United, sorry, the, the allies might lose this war. Now, if the Allies lose this war, America's out $2 billion. Yeah, they get $27 million, but remember, would you rather have $2,000 and miss out on $27, or have $27 and miss out on $2,000? That's what really gets the U.S. involved. If anything gets the U.S. involved in the war, that's what happens. Now, the U.S. troops in war, I'm going to talk about this fairly quickly. Um, although war was declared, the U.S. still didn't have a ton of troops, uh, not a lot of troop numbers, even though we're, there was some mobilization beforehand. Uh, it only gets much bigger after the war starts. Like, we really start training soldiers. Uh, it is able to mobilize very, very, very quickly. Very quickly. Uh, the U.S. soldiers get called doughboys. They get called doughboys. Uh, that is a term of endearment, mainly by the Europeans, particularly the French. Uh, doughboys, it comes from a lot of different things. I've heard a lot of different stories. Some say it's for the shape of their buttons. Uh, the one that actually has the most credibility was because the U.S. troops were considered to be fat, uh, chubby. And not like, not like, oh, these are morbidly obese, not in a bad way, but it's like, remember, they're going in to refresh troops that have been, like, starving for four years. So just imagine, like, you know, a skinny person opposed to somebody who was, like, starving looks fat. So they're like, oh, the little chubsters are coming. There they come rolling into battle. Look at those little tubbies run around. It's a term of endearment. Uh, America comes in about May 1918. Very quick war for the Americans. We show up at the end, pretty much break the stalemate, break the will of the Germans. We bring in about a million doughboys in May 1918. Um, you know, a lot of different soldiers come in. Like I said, it's it's a very quick war for the Americans. We we show up late. We we win theoretically. We we really break the stalemate. It's a war that's been going on for four years. We're only there for about three or four months. I mean, we show up in, uh, in May, and the war's over by November. Uh, one group I will always talk about, though, anytime I ever talk about this, is the 369th Infantry, one of my favorite units of all time, the Harlem Hellfighters. Uh, they are the second most decorated military unit in U.S. history. Uh, the Harlem Hellfighters, as you can tell by the picture, they are black. They are, a lot of them are from Harlem. A lot of them are from other parts of the U.S., uh, they are they are black and they are serving in combat. Now this is something the U.S. normally does not allow in this time period. Uh, black people can be in the military. Generally, they are not given guns. They're not allowed combat. Uh, combat troops are the ones who are generally best paid. You get the best compensation, highest honor. 
Uh, there were thoughts about, you know, are African-Americans strong, uh, smart enough? They're you know, strong, but are they smart enough? Are they capable enough? You know, also, do you want to give people that you oppress uh, knowledge of how to have a gun and fire stuff? Uh, so basically, whenever black people are drafted into the military, they're not allowed combat rules. But there's a loophole. The loophole is once they get to France, once they get to the Western Front, um, any allied nation who wants to use these troops as combat troops is allowed to. To which the French say, hey, you got soldiers we can use that are like new and haven't been starving for four years? And America's like, yeah, but they're black. And France is like, we don't give an F if they're black. We just want soldiers. And that's what the is. The Harlem Hellfighters, the 369th, even though it's an American unit, they fight for the French. I'm sorry, my chair is squeaky. Let me get comfy. They're fighting for the French, and they are amazing. They never give up any territory. Like, remember, this is a war that was known for the back and forth of, you know, just... Uh, no man's land going back and forth between the trenches. The Harlem Hellfighters never give up a yard. Period. Like, the Harlem Hellfighters, once they take territory, they never give it back. Now, partially it's because the other side was starving to death, but still it really says for their presence of their fighters. Uh, the French love the Harlem Hellfighters. Uh, as you can see by this picture, everybody here in this unit, if you no notice, everybody here in the unit has got uh, the Crew de Gras. Uh, not the Crew de Gras. The... Um, it's a French cross. It's a French cross. It's a French equivalent of the Medal of Honor. It's a French equivalent of the Medal of Honor. Highest award for soldiers. Tons of the Harlem Hellfighters get it. It's a big honking deal. Also, while they're in France, they experience tr they experience a treatment where they're not discriminated by race. Like in France, they don't care if they're black. They just view them as American. So like they're able to eat and drink and go pretty much anywhere and not be treated any different because of the color of their skin. I'm not saying that France doesn't have racism. It does. Good God, France has racism. Uh, talk to me about Algeria sometime. I will tell you all sorts of horrible things the French did. But in this time period, they, they, the French view these people not as black people, but as Americans. And also, hey, they're fighting for them, and everybody loves the Americans in this time period. If you go over one, you'll see a picture of the Harlem Hellfighters. Uh, you know, well, it's, it's a painting of what they're doing in battle. Like I said, they are the second most decorated military unit in U.S. history. We'll talk about the first decorated uh, whenever we get to World War II. Very highly honored. Uh, they are definite folk heroes for a lot of black Americans. A lot of black folks, period. Not necessarily African Americans, but just black folks in general. Uh, whenever they get back to uh, New York, there's a there's a parade that like is seen as the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance. Basically a parade welcoming them back, a ticker tape parade. However, there's definitely some backlash. There's definitely some backlash uh, particularly for the black soldiers who go back to the South. Uh, basically, once they get back to the South, some of them are told, hey, you've gotten to uppity, quote-unquote. You need to relearn how things work. You are in the South. You are no longer in Europe. You need to relearn your role. And it's very shameful to say that some of them actually do get lynched in uniform. I repeat, there are instances where a soldier comes back from fighting in a war. A black soldier is lynched in their uniform in the South. A couple cases around Georgia, I know for certain. There's probably some around here too. But definitely in Georgia, you have black soldiers being lynched in uniform. Now finally, in November 11th of 1918, um, you know, veteran, not veteran, is it Veterans Day? Yeah, it's Veterans Day. It's Veterans Day. Uh, Armistice Day, it's called in Europe. Uh, the war is called off. A, a truce is signed, an armistice aside, basically the fighting stops so basically, only a few months after America shows up, the fighting has stopped. That is on November 11th, 1918. 
Uh, the first U.S. troops come back around a couple weeks later, actually a week or two later. Uh, the reason I know that is my grandmother. You ready for a story that I get too much information about my great-grandparents? Here we go. My great-grandfather was a soldier in World War I. He served in France. Um, he came back from France on November the 22nd, 1918. My grandmother was born July 23rd, 1919. If you can do math, that is nine months and one day after he came back from France. You can put two and two together there. So there you go. My, my grandmother, we, we know what her parents were doing uh, the day after her dad got back from World War I. But an armistice is not the same thing as a peace treaty. And that has to be negotiated. And Woodrow Wilson, he kind of does something a little bit different. Generally, um, presidents don't go to peace treaties. Generally, this is something negotiated by the country's negotiators. Generally, the Secretary of State is the one that does that. Uh, however, Wilson says, you know what? I want to do this myself. He says, the war has been so bad, so destructive, we need to make something good come out of it. He says, basically, this war will have meant something. Because, like, there's really no change in territory. Tons of people died. Lots of Europe is devastated. I might have mentioned in your class that, like, to this day, Europe is devastated by World War I. Like, you can still see the scars if you ever go back there. Uh, he says, basically, this war has to mean something. All these deaths mean something if we never have a future war. Wilson is very much an idealist. He's very much an idealist. He said, you know what, if we can make another war not happen, it'll be worth it. So Wilson is called to Versailles. Uh, Versailles is the King of France's old palace. So there's no King of France by this time. However, it's a hunting camp. Uh, it's called a hunting camp. It's a ginormous palace. I've been there. Uh, it's huge. It's one of the most opulent palaces you'll ever see. It's a traditional place where peace treaties are done. Paris is a very common place to do peace treaties, mainly because Paris is a pretty cool city and everybody likes going to Paris. I mean, don't know if you've been to Paris. I've been a couple of times. It's a fun place to go. So Wilson, remember, he's this idealist. He's like, you know what, I'm going to negotiate, and I've got 14 points. He's like, i got 14 issues that if we do these things, we're going to make sure we never have a future war. Now, I'm not going to make you know all 14 points. You can read them there if you want to. Uh, in, in general, he wants three things. He wants self-determination, basically countries to be able to have their own affairs, which also means we shouldn't have secret alliances, get rid of the secret alliances. Number two, we should have free trade. Everybody should trade with everybody. Uh, the idea being that, hey, if everybody can trade with everybody, we're less inclined to go to war. You know, if you're, if you're trading with somebody and the money's good, you're not going to get involved with war. It uh, talks a lot about territory. This is not really a main point. Basically, nobody gets any new territory. And finally, finally, his most idealistic is we need to have an international forum that, like, people can come together Countries can come together and talk about their problems without going to war. He's like, you know, all these people died. Millions of people died because somebody shot an, shot an archduke in Sarajevo. You know, people very far away from Sarajevo died because this archduke was killed. Maybe if we had, like, a club, a, a, a congress almost, a parliament of other nations, we could get together and talk about this. We won't have people die. A League of Nations, if you will, which is what he calls it. But he says the League of Nations has to have all these other 14 points. His 14th point of the League of Nations has to have the other 13, because if not, it's not going to be a fair thing. 
Now, one thing he's not talking about is giving up territory or also reparations. Uh, generally, after a war, because wars cost money, the losing country has to pay the country that wins all the money. Now, when he presents this plan, one person who's really keen on this is Germany. Uh, Germany loves this. Germany loves this plan. They're like, thank you. This war is not our fault. Didn't the Archduke die or something? Uh, how are the other European nations, particularly France, who, remember, France is devastated. Most of the Western Front is fought in France. That is where the most destructive war is. Like, if you go there, you'll still see the scars. There's still landmines. Uh, France, in particular, wants Germany to pay either in territory or sanctions. And they also want to make sure that Germany doesn't have another uh, army ever again, so they put all sorts of economic sanctions, all sorts of um, money sanctions, industry sanctions. We'll talk about this later when we get to the Great Depression. Really hampers Germany. In fact, it's not an exaggeration to say that World War II and the rise of Hitler uh, happened a lot because of the League of Na uh, sorry, the, the response of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, a lot of countries feel their deserved territory don't get it. For instance, Italy. Italy switches sides midway through the war. Uh, Italy starts out on the side of the, uh, of the Central Powers, then it switches over midway through the war to the Allies. Uh, they want money. They want stuff. The other countries are like, no, Italy, we're not going to get that. give you that. Uh, that's one reason why Italy becomes the enemy of the Allies in World War II. Uh, uh, Japan the same way. Uh, Japan also wants stuff from the Treaty of Versailles. And they're like, Japan, were you even here? Like, did you send anybody to the front? Japan's like, no, but we want stuff. If you're giving away stuff, we want it. Uh, so pretty much, except for Germany, like, Italy and Japan were theoretically allies during the First World War, and why they get involved in the Second World War is based a lot upon them being upset. But the European countries do think the League of Nations is a pretty good idea, so they're like, you know what, we're going to have the League of Nations. Uh, that being said, Woodrow Wilson's like, we can't really have the League of Nations unless... Um, you know, we have all these other things. Uh, that isn't going to happen. The Treaty of Versailles says, hey, Germany's got to pay us all this money, we get all this territory from Germany, but we're also going to have a League of Nations. To which Wilson's like, that doesn't work out for us. And the other problem is anything doing with international policy, anything doing with like these sort of uh, foreign trade agreements, uh, not for trade agreements, foreign alliances, has to go through Congress. A very Republican Congress, Wilson is a Democrat, who is very upset with Wilson about what he's doing and is not keen on the fact that, you know, he kept us out of the war was his campaign slogan, and now he's getting us in a war. Not only that, he wants us to get involved in European alliances, which might cause more wars. Congress is wholeheartedly against this. They do not allow the United States to get into the League of Nations. So even though it's Wilson's idea, League of Nations is not for the United States. Now, Wilson decides, you know what, I'm going to make my case to the American people. I'm going to make my, my case to the American people. And so he decides, I'm going to go on a whirlwind tour of the country, whistle-stop tour, giving a bunch of speeches about why the League of Nations is a good idea. He's never done this before. He's never been a very good speaker. Uh, he's an adequate speaker. Um, people see him as a bit of an egghead. Uh, that being said, he starts giving the speeches. He goes all the way around the country, starts giving these speeches, exhausts himself to the point that when he's in Durango, Colorado, he like collapses of exhaustion. A couple days later, he has a stroke. Not just that, it's a very bad stroke. It's a very, very bad stroke that leaves him blind and incapacitated, unable to speak and unable to see for a while. 
Now, this is super, 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 super top secret. Uh, Americans do not know about this. Uh, pretty much the only people who know about this are, Will, are Wilson's vice president and his new wife. Oh, I should mention, uh, Woodrow Wilson's first wife dies while he's president. Uh, he, he gets remarried while he's president. It's a very small ceremony. It's not like a big thing like Grover Cleveland had. Uh, very private. He has his new wife. And basically, his new wife and the vice president act as though Wilson's okay, even though he's not. You could argue that Woodrow Wilson's wife was our first woman president because there's evidence she, like, forged his name and made decisions in his stead. Now, she would later say it wasn't anything too important. It was just administrative stuff. But they kind of faked for a while that Woodrow Wilson was okay. Uh, later on, his site would come back, and he gets a little bit more ability, mobility. But, like, he'd have cabinet meetings where he wouldn't say anything, and his wife and the vice president were like, you know, Woodrow and I were talking earlier, and this is what he wants done. That being said, though, that pretty much ends it for Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he, the Treaty of Versailles is not ratified by the United States. There is no League of Nations for the United States. He collapses. He will die shortly after he's no longer president. Uh, the election of 1920 we'll talk about later. Uh, you can see the political cartoon, the German people, they have to pay for all this damage. The Germans are very upset. They said, hey, isn't this like, you know, didn't Archduke die or something? This is not our fault. But that's going to end it with the domestic side of World War One.